On the podcast today, how could President Trump's tax cuts impact your portfolio? And what are some of the behavioral biases that get investors off track? We'll also talk to CLS Portfolio Manager Kostya Edis about fears and expectations and, of course, movies. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. I'm your host, Robin Murray. With me today is our Chief Investment Officer, Rusty Vanneman. Rusty, welcome. Thanks, Robin. Nice to be here. All right. Let's get started with a check-in on the markets. How is October shaping up? I've got numbers. Good. All right. Let's let's talk mm-hmm. about the numbers. So uh, month to date so far, it's another good month so far. It's gains across all global equity markets. And leading the way are the international markets. Emerging markets coming into this week, as of this recording, we're already up 4% for the month. The U.S. market was up just a little over 1%. So stock market gains again, and that includes particularly for the international markets. I just want to say it's been a phenomenal year also for the global equity markets. The U.S. market is up 15%. The international markets are up almost 25%, and emerging markets are up getting close to 35%. That's year to date. So needless to say, the one-year numbers are great. Again, 20% plus for all markets. And the other thing I want to point out are the three- and five-year numbers, because this is interesting in a bunch of different ways. Again, we have double-digit gains for the U.S. markets, but the international markets, despite their strong performance this year, are still sort of mid-level-ish single digits. So they still have a lot of catching up to do, in our opinion. Lastly, when it comes to diversifying asset classes, uh, bonds are basically positive in all time frames, though with low returns. And then something, of course, we've talked about here on the weighing machine and in a lot of our CLS commentary is the commodity asset class. Having a good month so far this month, up about 2%, but negative in the longer time frames, and therefore might be an opportunity to add some exposure moving forward. All right. Well, something that's been on a lot of people's minds right now, which is the president's proposed tax cuts. I want to talk about that. He's selling them as a boon for businesses, particularly small businesses. But as Paula Week wrote in her weekly three that's being published this week, the benefit for small businesses may not be very significant. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it is a proposal, so it's kind of early to really know what's going to happen. But in the proposal, the tax rate would be lowered to 25% for pass-through income of small companies. And the problem, however, is that this cut only benefits a small percentage of earners, as most mom-and-pop businesses don't earn enough to qualify for the top tax rate anyway. And we think this wouldn't benefit from the cut. And so what's the implication? The implication is in any speculation that proposed tax cuts would directly help small-cap stocks may be overblown. All right. Well, she also wrote that the about the potential impact on the national debt. So the cuts are projected to add about $7 trillion. What's the kind of trickle-down effect of increased debt? Well, the projected $7 trillion added to the national debt level is worrisome. And although the idea of these tax cuts are to increase spending and thus increase growth, this outcome could be short-lived, which could actually hinder growth in the longer term. In theory, a higher debt level coupled with slower growth could mean a weaker dollar, which would add to the attractiveness of investing in international markets abroad by diversifying currency exposures. Again, CLS's stance currently is to not hedge the currencies of our international investments, at least until the dollar becomes undervalued, again, regardless of the policy outcome. Okay, and what's the takeaway overall for investors on this? Well, we believe that the probability that every change proposed will pass is actually relatively low, but nonetheless, CLS will continue to monitor the ongoing developments. Um, Again, we really emphasize our proprietary research, such as risk budget scores, CLS edge scores, which creates expected returns to really determine our outlooks. And that really dominates over headline news or potential policy changes. All right. Keep focused on the long game. That's what we like to reiterate here on The Weighing Machine. 
I want to talk about a couple other points that Paula made in her weekly. First, she updated us on CLS's protection strategies. Now, these are interesting because they're aimed at investors who have certain behavioral biases. In this case, specifically, loss aversion. Explain how does that work? Okay, so while Paula is definitely one of our resident behavioral finance experts, we have a few of them, and she's definitely one of them. And behavioral finance is really challenges standard economic theory, where it kind of and it assumes that everybody is a rational economic creature, but really we're humans and we have emotions and and. Um, and we have just typical human behavior. As a result, there's something that we talk about a lot called the behavior gap. And that behavior gap, again, is the difference between an investment's return and the return that investors have in that investment. And usually the difference is because of their behavior. As for loss aversion, that is really about investors are being more impacted by a loss than they are from a gain. So the pain they feel from a loss is like, depends on the study. Maybe it's twice as powerful as the pleasure they get from a gain or three times or five times or whatever it is. But in any case, uh, losses hurt more than the pleasure they get from gains. Okay, so how do CLS's protection strategies work then for those loss-averse investors? Well, the our protection strategies are rules-based, and uh, kind of the idea behind it is that um, it it really kind of limits the downside, and and the idea is that when the market starts to move lower, we start to build protection back into the portfolios, with the idea that hopefully it will prevent large losses. Um, also, not kind of a neat feature to it is that as the market moves higher, the way the rules work, it'll sort of ratchet up sort of the the levels for protection, which in a way is kind of like locking in gains, so to speak. Um, it's a really clever strategy, and um, it's it's performed very well in recent years. Uh, one of the the beauties to it is that it is able to maintain exposure and to growth-oriented investments over time, which is something that makes it kind of unique relative to most tactical strategies. So Paula also wrote about another common behavioral bias in her weekly three that I want to talk about, which is regret aversion. Yeah. How does that work? Well, she did mention there's 15 different biases, and it depends on the list. Her list came from the CFA Institute, and so those 15 biases are probably being studied by students all over the world right now. But uh, you could say there's many more biases, but the regret aversion is definitely one of the more common ones. And we see it in a lot of investors, and basically it means that uh, investors who exhibit regret aversion tend to just avoid making decisions um, by either taking inaction, well, such as staying out of the market for too long, or they simply follow the herd. And they do this because they feel like they can alleviate themselves of the responsibility and fear of making a poor decision. So what should regret-averse investors do to balance out their biases then? Well, I think the answer there is to hire a, a, fi a financial advisor or a professional money manager. Create some distance, add some discipline. That. I know. All right. Okay, let's leave it at that. I want to bring in our guest for today, Kostja Edis, portfolio manager and international expert here at CLS. Kostja, welcome. Thanks for having me, Robin. All right. So one of the things that you talked about in your weekly um, that you published a couple weeks ago is unrealistic fears. So. As always, you have some great movie quotes that I want you to get to as well. They talked about Friday the 13th, and I did. Um, what are some unrealistic fears that people need to not worry about? Well, have you ever heard of periscavidecatriophobia? I have because I read you weekly, but that's the only reason why. <laughs> it happens to be fear of the Friday the 13th, which is kind of crazy to think about. There's nothing that proves something bad happens there. 
we did have a Friday the 13th last week. It happened to also be my birthday, and I'm still oh, here and nothing. Birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, nothing that bad happened to me. But uh, it, in, the interesting thing is there's some studies that show industries like airlines lose a lot of business because people are scared to travel on those. Hey, here's an easier one. Have you ever heard of triskaidekaphobia? It is the fear of Triscuits. I'm kidding. It's fear, <laughs> it's fear of the number 13 itself. And there's okay, uh, yep. some buildings like hospitals that skip that floor altogether. The bottom line is some of these fears are a bit uh, embellished, and there's nothing really um, there to warrant fear. There's a lot of similar fears uh, that happen in the world that people believe will affect the markets negatively but they really should be left separate. Uh, just to highlight three of them, first off, we have politics. Uh, as we all know, the U.S. president is in the news constantly, and there's lots of ele elections happening all around the globe, particularly in Europe. And some political things like policy actions, as Rusty talked about lowering the uh, tax rate, could have some kind of economic or market impacts. In general, it's, it's not a certain event, and until it becomes more of a certainty, it's just pure speculation. All of the other day-to-day -day kind of nonsense is, is all just, just noise and really should be kept separate and ignored. Another thing that's been in a lot of news recently is nuclear threats and uh, terrorist attacks. So you've got all this um, talk about North Korea uh, launching some um, missiles over Japan. Well, if there was ever any kind, first off, it's a low probability event of some kind of nuclear war. But if there was such a thing happening, I would think that your investment account would probably be the worst, the least of your worries. But, uh, you know, so something that you can't really evaluate what the impact would be, really shouldn't think about that. Now, terrorist attacks don't have any impact uh, t typically on economic growth or company earnings. And if you can't measure it, let's just make that a key takeaway. Can't measure it, let's keep it separate from financial markets, period. Um, that said, a kind of a recent topic has been cybersecurity. And that's a little different because that's an evolution of uh, technological advancement. And that may warrant a watchful eye. Lastly, we've got weather. Come on, nobody can predict it. It's wind. No one knows what way it's going to blow. Uh, but, you know, there are natural disasters that occur. Interestingly, though, something you might not think about, the short-term effects may be uh, disastrous, as the name natural disaster suggests, but longer-term effects may not be as clear because after everything's demolished, somebody's got to put it all back together, and that helps the economy, increase spending and building and what have you. Um, nonetheless, those three things we talked about probably should be kept separate. So what are some things, mm -hmm. the, some I legitimate concerns? I was going to be my next question, yes. What are some, <laughs> <laughs> what are some legitimate concerns? Here's some happy news. <laughs> <laughs> 
Just uh, clear holocaust. Sounds like a Russian novel right now. <laughs> Gloom and doom over here. Uh-huh. Um, so s- some concerns that uh, we have here at CLS, we call them our top three concerns. Now we have a huge list that we kind of vote on what concerns should really be relevant. Those three that I talked about are on the list, but they don't usually don't make the cut for some of the reasons I explained. First and foremost, you're going to keep hearing this over and over in all kinds of CLS discussions, U.S. stock market valuations are at peak levels. That means there's a higher probability of lower returns for the U.S. market. And as we all very well know, CLS is emphasizing international equities because their valuations are just so much better. Global debt levels are high. Um, Lowering taxes wouldn't help this in the US. At CLS, we like emerging market equities. Uh, They tend to have higher growth and lower debt levels, uh, whereas higher debt usually slows growth. Those should benefit. Lastly, we've got investor expectations and emotions. So that one may seem a little bit off the beaten path, but it's actually one of the most important ones with expectations for lower market performance in the future. It's very, very important for investors uh, to stay balanced and globally diversified and make sure um, they're set for the long term. All right. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that that last point, managing expectations. It's a big part of our focus here on CLS as the weighing machine because it's pretty much the number one value add that advisors can offer investors. So talk a little bit more about the importance of expectations in investing. Absolutely. I'd like to first tell you about how to enjoy movies. Well, all right, do that then. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there is an art to it. And a lot of times you'll go into a movie that has been really talked about. All your colleagues keep sending you uh, trailers and big write-ups. Thank you, Rusty. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. <laughs> about how great something's going to be. Um, and then you go into it with these uh, unrealistic expectations of how great it's going to be and you end up being disappointed, even though it was a great movie. One uh, recent example is uh, Blade Runner 2049. I tried everything possible to keep my expectations down, and I was very pleasantly surprised at how great that was. Um, The markets are no different. If investors uh, have high expectations, which they typically do in bull markets like the one we're having right now, it leads to huge disappointment when the market doesn't deliver. Um, The forces driving these high expectations are no different from movies. You've got colleagues discussing their successes, sensational media headlines, and you've got analysts and economists getting overly happy about things. Let's bring them down to this coast show gloom and doom level here. Um, no different with critic reviews. You, know, you follow those as if they were you know, the best things ever. Um, at CLS, uh, we don't necessarily believe there's going to be a bear market, mainly because the economy is still strengthening and corporate earnings are actually growing at double-digit levels. But we do expect uh, that Um, There may be a shorter-term correction or a pullback, generally below below historic average uh, returns in the future. And I don't don't like it when people start getting kind of uneasy when 
you say the word correction because that it's a very normal part of the market. It's just this year we've we've had kind of an an intense um, strong market where there's not too much volatility. Okay, well, the final thing that you wrote about uh, that I want to talk about is following the herd and the importance of being different as an investor. So why is that key to investing success? You have to be different to win. That's, that's, the, main, that, that's the main objective in the game of markets. And to truly be different, you have to go against the herd. Uh, when everybody is flocking into the same best-performing investment, you somehow need to step out of your comfort zone, forget about your feelings, and do what logic really suggests, what, what, what the fundamentals tell you to do. Um, now, um, there are several quotes in my weekly, but I, I would like to recite one of them that really, <laughs> really <laughs> hits home on this point. Um, this is uh, from uh, 1987's Wall Street, quote from Gordon Gecko. You ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep, and the sheep get slaughtered. I've been in the business since 69. Most of these high-paid NBA types, they don't add up to dog Give me guys who are poor, smart, and hungry, and no feelings. You win some, you lose some, but you keep on fighting. And if you need a friend, get a dog. <laughs> we'll be expecting movie quotes from you every time you're a guest, just so you know. Uh, one, one of the uh, areas uh, we like to uh, analyze at CLS is behavioral movements. Rusty kind of talked about it a little bit, but we do put some numbers to it. Um, we break down behavioral analysis into two parts. Technical analysis, which is a study of price action, and investor sentiment. Uh, that basically focuses on what investors are thinking, saying, and doing. Uh, and then investor sentiment can yet be broken up into two more ways. Investment surveys, which Rusty actually talked about in the monthly a uh, couple weeks back, and then investment flows, what people are actually buying and selling. And just to hit a little bit on that, we have uh, tested the data and we found that over the short term, uh, three-month flows, uh, what people are buying is actually a favorable indicator for the markets. We'll call that follow the flow. On the other hand, uh, longer term or three-year flows have a negative relationship. So things that people have been flocking to over the long term, they're getting pretty close to that cliff and about to fall over. You're probably going to want to turn around and go the other way. That's uh, cleverly called sell the loved and buy the unloved. So anticipating, uh, we, we always uh, evaluate where the herd is moving and trying to anticipate um, their movements and that help that make, with, make our investment decisions. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Kostya. Great insight as always. Before you go, I think Rusty has I get my chance some now? questions oh, for gosh. you. Oh, gosh. Here we go. <laughs> all right, Kostya. Well, first of all, you do a lot of cool and interesting stuff and important things here at CLS. But before we were really talking about your role at CLS, could you tell us a little bit about your background and your origins? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was, uh, as, as you may have guessed, I am not a U.S. citizen. I am now, but uh, I wasn't born in the U.S. I was actually born in Soviet Russia the actual uh, USSR, in a city called Novosibirsk. 
and uh, Noah Sibirsk stands for New Siberia. So all, all the uh, cliches you've heard, you know, 10 feet of snow, um, just horrible nine-month winters, everything's true. Uh, you know, you hear some older folks say, you know, uh, back in my day I had to, you know, go to school for miles uphill both ways. Well, I actually did go uphill both ways because the snow drift would shift in, over the <laughs> afternoon. So you came to the tropical <laughs> climates of Nebraska. Yeah, yeah, yeah I p- picked a great place. But one interesting thing is uh, we moved to America in 93, which is right after the fallout of the Soviet Union and also the time of the worst monetary policy and monetary policy history, according to me. But the value of the ruble basically was decimated and Think about one day the, your money can buy a car, the next day it can buy a coat, and on the third day it can just buy a, a loaf of bread. And this bread wasn't even sliced. Yeah, so don't, don't take that for granted. Um, what that experience has really taught me, as, even as a child, is the true value of a dollar, which um, I still you know, use to this day. And I like to call it being smart with my money, but my wife likes to call it being cheap. And also it has uh, raised a high level of skepticism. You know, there's a lot of kind of mistrust of um, politics and uh, just everywhere you turn in Russia. So what these two things have taught me more than all the years of schooling about investing is that... um, you really have to focus on undervalued investments and don't take everything at face value. Do some digging and f- make sure that what you're buying is actually a quality investment and it's cheap for a reason. Oh, good stuff. All right, so now give us more detail on your role here at CLS and how did you get into this position as well? Uh, sure. Um, I, After uh, I graduated undergrad, I kind of took... Uh, perhaps a step in the wrong direction and, uh, you know, went to a company that paid a lot of money, um, ConAgra Foods. And um, I quickly realized that if I wasn't doing um, what I love to do, I just simply wasn't going to be happy. So I did everything possible to uh, get my my foot in the door at an investment company, which happened to be CLS. Uh, took a pay cut to get on the trading team, and slowly uh, clawed and fought my way up to the portfolio management team. There wasn't that much blood. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been with CLS a total, uh, getting close to seven years here, and um, it's really been kind of a dream come true. Um, I'm doing what I love, and uh, if you're doing what you love, then you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. So obviously you have a couple different mandates here in terms of your job. What are some of the portfolios and strategies that you're running? I work on our uh, global aggressive uh, mutual fund with Grand Engelbart. Uh, We call it the 110 because it takes uh, on 110 percent of the risk of a global equity benchmark. And you can imagine uh, we um, have some interesting positions in that fund, trying to get that risk higher. So that's a lot of fun. And then I work uh, with the uh, walking computer, Joe Smith, on the International Equity Fund. And we utilize a quantitative model 
to uh, evaluate investments for that fund, and that that has been quite an experience to learn how all of that uh, works. And uh, I have been spearheading the uh, portfolio management for our 529 and um, institutional plans. And more recently, I have been uh, doing a lot of work with ESG investments because I really see a bright future uh, for ESG and it's really couples well with the trend in the ETF market. I'll definitely come back to that because that's a topic we should definitely hit. But given all the things you do, what do you feel in, in your own opinion? What do you think is the most important part of your job? And what do you like most? Is it the same thing? Or are they different? Um, geez, you've uh, got a talent for putting me on the spot. Um, I, the most important thing is clearly what my passion is, which is um, the actual act of analysis, um, digging uh, deeper into investments, uh, evaluating um, how valuations compare, how the fundamental uh, fundamental quality characteristics compare among investments, and really trying to um, to pick uh, what the best investment for the future will be to benefit our clients and uh, beat the market. And there's there's no better game out there. Yeah. Well, I can clearly vouch for that. I mean, in terms of your output, uh, which is quite detailed, it's almost a job for myself just to read your output on a daily <laughs> basis. So I can definitely test that. All right, let's move into some more fun things here. Uh, not to say that stuff wasn't fun already, because that was some really cool stories. But um, so obviously you've been interested in investing for a long time now, mm -hmm. and you've already kind of mentioned some of your influences, but what and who are your influences in making you the investment person you are now? You know, I, like a lot of um, other people might say, have stories about investing, you know, when they're five years old or, um, you know, being immersed or being some kind of a child prodigy. Uh, most of the stories are are false, just to be frank. But I'm I'm just kidding. Um, but probably. Uh, but I really didn't fall in love with investing probably until my uh, junior year as an undergrad in the second half of the year. I knew I wanted to do something with finance, but it was really when I took a portfolio management class where we were uh, managing a small uh, part of the endowment, endowment for University of Nebraska at Omaha. And just the, the whole process of analyzing companies, um, digging deep, figuring out where the value was, and actually actively picking an investment and watching it, uh, grow really sparked a uh, passion in me. And after that, I started investing my own money and the rest is history. I'd say um, from an influence standpoint, um, this is, uh, Rusty calls this a cop-out because if you're from Omaha, you really shouldn't use this, but I am gonna have to default to Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham. Uh, Part of the reading for that portfolio management class was the intelligent investor, and there really isn't much more that you need to um, know outside of that book to get you if, to fall in love with investing. So I definitely uh, recommend that um, for everybody. But uh, learning about you know deep value from uh, Graham and picking quality investments from Buffett 
is really um, the baseline of um, what I believe. Yeah, you can definitely see it in your work. All right, so let's move on to another quick topic because it could be an entire podcast in its own, but let's just talk movies real fast because anybody who reads your commentaries and see your presentations and all you do know you love movies. So we just got to know, what are your top five movies? What is your favorite financial movie? And do you have any current recommendations on movies? Okay, I'll try and make this brief, but as if you know me and if you've been listening so far, you know it won't be. Uh, my number one movie is Lion King. It happens to be the first movie I saw in America, so it kind of gives me that uh, happy feeling whenever I think about it. But if you just go back and rewatch it and think about, you know, all of the suspense and the music and the sadness and the happiness, it's just great. Um, plus, uh, throughout the whole movie, everybody's nude in it. Uh, the, the, the second the second one is uh, you know everybody loves their gangster movies a lot of people talk about Godfather I like Casino personally and I classify it as a comedy every time I watch that movie I know it's gory and as Rusty knows I, I kind of like some kind of gory uh, bloody movies but Casino is just I just laugh nonstop. Uh, then you've got uh, the Guy Ritchie movie Snatch which is great British humor, and I just love the film style. And uh, if you uh, haven't watched the new King Arthur movie, um, I know it's not a great comparison, but that's actually directed by Guy Ritchie, and you can see a lot of similarities. He's got a very unique filmmaking style. The, these next two, some people maybe have never even heard of. One is The Big Hit, one of Mark Wahlberg's first movies. Um, it's just a perfect blend of action and comedy and who doesn't like Marky Mark. And then the last one, I gotta throw a Western in there, Young Guns 2. We all love Westerns, but this, this one really put it all together for me. And one of my favorite quotes of all time, this is uh, Billy the Kid talking about, uh, well, not to spoil anything for anybody, but the guy that kills him, Pat Garrett. Um, they say I never stole a horse from a man I didn't like. And did I like him? Well, no. I love that son of a bitch. All right. We're setting a record for bleeps in our podcast this week. Um, as far as uh, the uh, investing movies, um, I got to go with Wolf of, Wolf of Wall Street. And mm -hmm. we were just recently talking about this, actually, me and Rusty. The F word is used 508 times. Mm -hmm. And that way, that's just... I do think, though, that movie does have legitimate material in it, too, besides all those other aspects. <laughs> but anyway... Yeah. Um, what about recent movies? Well, uh, Blade Runner was was phenomenal. As yeah. you know, you've already seen it twice, right? I have. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the the music in it, and uh, I don't I don't I don't know if uh, people love Gosling. I, I'm I'm in love with him. But he he does these movies like Drive and uh, Only God Forgives, where they do these like close ups of his face. And then it's just music playing, and all you like feel is emotion. Like I, I, I'm not even sure if there's any dialogue in the movie Drive, but uh, and there's not much in Blade Runner. It's just these really intense scenes, and then there's crazy Hans Zimmer music that shakes the room. It's oh, just yeah, it's just just intense. Well, as you said, you can't win if you're not different. And your top five is truly different than anybody else's <laughs> top five in the entire universe. 
and always will be different. <laughs> All right, Cole. So let's get back to something serious because it is a topic you're also very passionate about, and you've done a ton of work on it and building portfolios, speaking about it, just banging on the drum. And that, of course, is the topic of ESG investing. So tell us more about it, what it is, and what you're doing with it right now. Okay. I I'd like I want to start at the beginning of history, which for SRI, it's a few decades ago, and talk about what, first off, there are a few acronyms to keep straight here. SRI, Socially Responsible Investing, that's kind of the first wave of values-based investing. And what is it? It's really avoiding companies you don't want access to. So you take the broad market and you start cutting out companies you don't like, like tobacco, energy companies, or uh, companies that manufacture weapons. So the old kind of idea of it is, so I'm paying extra for this screen, but basically getting market-like exposure. So it's going to, I'll feel better, but it's going to underperform in the long run. And that's that's kind of been the viewpoint, and that's really not a great way to think about values-based investing and incomes ESG. The, the evolution is what I'll call it, the evolution of values-based investing. ESG, environmental, social, and governance. First off, three key things, but it's not it's not exclusionary in nature. This is inclusionary. You're only including the companies that fit those criteria. So you've got companies that are favorable towards the environment. You've got companies from that are favorable from a social aspect, which means you know they really care about people. There's uh, gender diversity. They um, have really. Uh, accepted social change in in the world. And then the last one is a very unique one. Remember it for what I'm going to say next. But governance is making sure the board of directors of a company is doing things in the f- actually in the favor of the shareholders. So making sure it's a diverse board, making sure that all of their decisions are with the shareholders in focus. So why is that important? Well, a little bit of each one of those, primarily governance, leads into definition of a high-quality company. Quality, high-quality companies are, have great governance. Um, they're well-diversified and have uh, attestations to social issues. And if, you've got, if you're a great company, you've got lots of cash flow, you make a lot of money, you've got plenty of money to spend on making the environment better. So typically, these ESG companies are high-quality companies. High-quality companies have great fundamentals, high profitability, and in a down market, they tend to do better just because their management is more confident in weathering the storm. So you think about ESG now, now it's companies that actually tend to do better over time because um, you don't, they don't, underperform as much during down markets and you don't have to worry about litigations or you know the enrons of the world it should screen those companies out and that will result in better returns in the future so it's it's very important to keep to to forget about that old philosophy that SRI is always going to underperform we got the new school now ESG yeah. Well, that I mean, again, I think you some themes you hit upon a lot 
uh, here is that obviously you're a quality investor. You're always looking for higher quality companies, and obviously the valuation and contrarian sensibilities also popped through, which of course really kind of kept us what we're doing here at CLS Investments and running portfolios. Well, Robin, that's all I have. I don't have any more questions for you. All right. Well, great conversation, Coaster. Thanks so much for coming in. That will do it for this edition of CLS is the Weighing Machine. Rusty, great to chat as always. Yes, thanks. All right. Stay balanced. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> to all of our listeners out there, thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments.